So we will go into the Lord's uh, Word again today in Luke. We're in beginning chapter 3, where we left off uh, at the end of last week. So if you have your uh, Bibles available, open up. Let's go through uh, chapter 3 of Luke. Dear Heavenly Father, gracious Heavenly Father, we sit at your feet. And uh, Father, we ask that you would guide us through your Word this morning and guard our hearts to keep what we learn. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of uh, chapter 2, we had finished looking at Luke's account of Jesus as a young boy. Remember, this is the, really the only gospel account that gives us that kind of background on Christ in his early days as a young man. I mean, after all, going back now to the beginning of the book, we've learned about his uh, rather uh, inconsequential birth. I mean, from human eyes, a nobody born in nowhere to a family that was looked down upon, and, and yet it was the most important birth the world will ever know. And then in the later chapters, as we study, we've seen him already growing a little and in the temple teaching as a young man and how amazing that must have been. And, and yet, as the, as the boy grows, he's gaining wisdom, gaining strength, reflecting his humanity, that he's not merely some image of God, some ghost walking the earth. He is truly man. And in that, he is limited and must grow like any boy. We see some of that. And, and we marvel a little at what it must have been like to be God and, uh, in the form of man, obedient to the Father in heaven, and yet also obedient to his parents on earth. Which, when you think about it, must have been a very difficult process at times because his parents, unlike his Father in heaven, would not have been sinless. Their direction and instruction to him would not have been perfect, I assume, because they're not perfect. And yet he had to honor them while not sinning as, a, as an individual. It must have been a very interesting time. We, we all look forward to the stories that no doubt will come out when we reach heaven and we get to hear about the details that weren't recorded in Scripture. But today in chapter 3 we jump forward. Uh, Luke leaves the childhood of Jesus at the end of chapter 2 and he moves directly into the story of John the Baptist. Now, for the next couple of weeks we'll be examining John the Baptist as he is explained in Scripture, but I want you to know as we begin it today that the story is fundamentally not about John the Baptist, you understand. His role is one, ultimately, like all the, others that are, all the other stories captured in Scripture, one of magnifying Christ's ministry, of explaining it, of, of putting context around it. So although we study John, we don't study John for John's sake. We study John to understand Christ's ministry. And that's how Luke presents it faithfully today. Let, let's read in, as we begin chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as we open the chapter. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Luke opens chapter 3 in the way he's opened a couple of chapters already with historical background or context. And his purpose here is to really give some time markers to the events of this chapter to help us localize in time. Uh, calendars as we see them today, the Gregorian calendar as an example, didn't exist in this day. Men dated things in relationship to the lives of the rule of certain men. 
And here you see Luke following that practice. Markers here are given for the placement of time. So let's understand some of these markers just in passing. Uh, Pontius Pilate, for example. We know from historical records he was the governor of Judea from about AD 26 until late 36. So there's a, a 10-year span of time in which these events could have taken place. Going further, Herod Antipas, we know ruled as the Tetrarch of Galilee from about 4 BC to AD 39. So that's still within that same relative range of time. His brother, Herod Philip, ruled the northern part of modern-day Palestine. He ruled from about 4 BC to AD 34. So again, more confirmation for that same period of time. We don't know anything about uh, Lysanias, but it's interesting here to see the two high priests named. And that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, On the one hand, it was not typical that you would expect to have two high priests at any given moment. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, going back to the law, you had one high priest each year. Then, at some point, the Jews had begun to distort their law, which, of course, shouldn't surprise anyone in here. They did that in many ways. But the leadership of the nation of Israel had changed the role of high priest from a once-a-year annual kind of honoring position to a position of life. It was a lifetime position by this point, and it had become a political position. So it was often inherited by the priest's son, rather than being moved around according to the way God had intended. So Annas, we know, was the high priest from about A.D. 6 to about A.D. 15, Until, for reasons we don't understand, Rome removed Annas from that position. Remember, Rome ruled over this region, and so whatever the Jews did within their own law was always under the authority of what Rome itself would allow. And at some point, Annas had done something or said something which irritated the the Roman rulers, and they had removed him as high priest. But the Jews still regarded him as high priest because they couldn't care less what the Romans did. They recognized Annas as their high priest and still allowed him to hold the title. But nevertheless, the Romans instituted or installed their own high priest in replacement of Annas, a man named Caiaphas. In fact, there had been several men after Annas before finally Caiaphas came into power. He was Annas' son-in-law, which shows you a little bit of the Romans' way of trying to uh, appease the Jews. Put somebody in control who was at least related to the original man, and hopefully that would allow the Jewish people to see him as a true high priest. But whatever the case, we know Caiaphas came into power about A.D. 18 and ruled until A.D. 37. So if you overlap all of these dates, you find a fairly narrow range of time in which the events of chapter 3 could have taken place, somewhere after A.D. 18 and prior to A.D. 34. In the time that he would have been in his roughly in his 20s, or as we know from other evidence in Scripture, that Jesus himself would have been in his late 20s, early 30s. All of these indicators, though, have to come down to one year, and the rule of Tiberius here gives us that one year. Tiberius, we're told here by Luke, was in his 15th year, which other records would tell us is about A.D. 29. So, after all of that, the answer is, roughly A.D. 29, we see the ministry of John the Baptist appear on the scene. Jesus, we know, was born in around 4 B.C., so you put Jesus' age here as John the Baptist comes into his ministry at about 33, give or take a year. So, now John, we are told from Scripture, hears from God while in the desert, in the wilderness. This means living off the land, well outside of any human settlement, somewhere out in the, in the hills, the hill country of Judea. Now, he had apparently been living there for some period of time, for some extended period of time, because both Matthew and Mark tell us that John ate honey, 
He ate locusts. He wore crude clothing made out of camel hair. He was uh, not what you would think of as a traditional minister type. In fact, he's really mimicking more here the pattern of the prophets. I like to think as I read the description, honey, locusts, camel hair clothing, he might have fit in into Austin just very well. (laughs) He was uh, basically living the life of a wild man, away from civilization, relying on probably no one, separated from his family, separated from his townspeople. And as we read down through this account, it almost seems as though he's been forgotten, that he's disappeared for some time. Because as you read through the rest of this gospel and the other gospels, you'll find very quickly that the response of the people and of the leadership when John's ministry begins is one of curiosity. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Out of nowhere, it seems, John shows up. Now, had he been around his own people and family continuously, then it wouldn't have made sense that he would have been so mysterious, that he would have been such an outsider to them. It would have been natural for them to say, oh, that's just crazy old John, Elizabeth's kid. He's never been right in the head. No, he's a stranger. That tells me that at some early point, and knowing he's probably around the same age as Jesus, remember, both Mary and Elizabeth were pregnant together, So he's in his early 30s, probably. And that means he may have been out of the family since he was in his early teens. Long enough that he's forgotten. Long enough that they don't recognize him anymore. So he comes back down on the scene in this way. Now, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why did God see fit to give John the Baptist such a unique life in preparation for this ministry? I mean, it's one thing to ask about why God uses him at all. Why there is the ministry of John the Baptist. But even that in and of itself, is predicated on, is built on this whole life of John, who he is and how it began and all that God did to prepare him for his ministry. It seems odd, to say the least, and it begs the question, what's the purpose in it? Obviously, God is not about doing things capriciously, randomly, uh, without any thought. That's not the God we know in Scripture. He plans to details we can't even anticipate or understand. So there's something about the way John's life begins that's important. Now, we've already said in past chapters of Luke, that John's ministry is ultimately to prepare a way for Jesus in two ways. First, in the way that he uh, announces the coming of Christ and in doing so fulfills prophecy so as to help men know and, and understand that Jesus is the Messiah. But then secondly, he prepares a crowd, to put it simply. He prepares a following. At the moment Jesus begins his adult ministry, there is already a following around John that John is then able to offload, to transfer to Jesus, so that at his very first day in ministry, he has listeners and followers. Something that was important if he was to make his message known. And so all of this is part of what God has intended for him. What do we make of this way it starts? Well, I've said already that in much the same way that John the Baptist represented the Old Testament and Jesus through Mary represented the New Testament. Well, John also represents another very important aspect of God's work in creation. We know out of Scripture that we're told the Holy Spirit acts in the world, even to today, to prepare the hearts of those who would receive the Word of God and ultimately receive salvation through the Word of God. A good example that I would point you to is the parable of the four seeds found in Luke chapter 8 which, if God permits, we may teach on one day. The parable of the four seeds is a good picture of this relationship between the Holy Spirit and His ministry and Christ and the ministry of salvation. In that parable, you know, it's often referred to as the parable of the sower and the seeds, but it's really more about the soil. It's really a parable about four soils because the focus of that parable is the way in which four different soils 
produce four different kinds of crop or, or response, but always to the same seed. The seed's not any different. In fact, the seed's the same and the sower is hardly even mentioned. In fact, the sower is totally irrelevant. The point is that what happens once the seed, which the parable itself says is the word of God, what happens when the word of God lands in the soil? It produces one of four responses, and that response is conditioned only on the difference in the soil itself. That's the only difference between the four conditions. The only difference that explains the different outcomes. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture, and in fact, if you study the parable itself, Christ himself makes the point that in the way that soil has been prepared to receive the seed, some more so than others, that determines the outcome. The Holy Spirit is that gardener, if you will, the one who tills the hard-hearted man so that there is a receptiveness in the heart to the Word of God. The more ready the soil is, so to speak, for the seed, the more likely it is for that seed to germinate and produce faith. That's the, the essence of the parable. We'll cover it in much greater detail on an appropriate day. But without that preparation, without the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a hearer, there will not be a response to the Word of God. It will fall like a seed on hard-packed soil, and the birds, which represent the enemy, will snatch it away before there is any chance for it to grow. That's the truth of Scripture. John here pictures or represents or shadows the Holy Spirit in ministry, in his relationship to Christ. God calls John the Baptist here to minister into the world even while he was in the womb, as you know, with the Holy Spirit coming upon him in that moment because he wanted John to be set apart from the world immediately. And then through his adult ministry, he would be the one who would prepare the hearts, prepare the people so that when Christ, the Word of God, arrives, there would be a response to his ministry. That's what Isaiah was speaking about in the verses that Luke just quoted out of Isaiah. But now, I want you to consider how John's life itself becomes a bit of a picture of God's plan of redemption in the way the Holy Spirit operated. We know that in the earliest stages of God's plan with the nation of Israel, he was active with them in a way that even to today we don't see. Visibly present. Visibly manifesting himself through uh, supernatural works. The, the, the pillar of fire, the cloud, the mountain, the thunder, the temple being represented by the tabernacle and then later the temple, the God's house being there with the people wherever they went. Those, those were the ways in which God manifested himself in the early days to the nation of Israel. And he gave them his word. And yet they did not listen. They did not obey. They had hard hearts, stiff necks, uh, the scripture says. And ultimately God left them to their sin in judgment for their unbelief. And he removed his presence from them. And for a period of close to 400 years, there was nothing. There was no word from the Lord. There was no manifestation of his presence. Where would you have gone to see evidence of the Holy Spirit at work? Other than in the hearts of individuals, he was not outwardly manifesting himself for a period of time, waiting for the appropriate moment to return. In the way John the Baptist, for example, lived his life. There for a time and then gone. Not to be heard, not to be seen, out of view. And he reappears on the River Jordan with this hard message. Do you know the harder your message out of Scripture, the more integrity the messenger has to have? If you want to really scold somebody about sin, you better not have any sin evident in your life. Now, no one can meet that test perfectly apart from Christ, but I think here again, John's role was so unique, so convicting, so pointed, he had to come on the scene in a culture that prided itself on self-righteousness, on living according to the law, on being perfect by virtue of works. And he had to come on the scene and say, you're not getting it. You're far from the mark, 
And God's prepared to make up the gap for you, but only if you're willing to acknowledge the gap in the first place. Repent, in other words. Acknowledge your sin and seek God's work on your behalf. And so he shows up in town with this hard message so that God can make sure the message isn't obscured by the messenger. It's a reflection, I think, of the reality that when someone's too close to us, we know them too well. And when we know them too well, we can't see past them to hear the message. So the reality is that if John the Baptist had been a partner in that community all the way up to the moment of the beginning of his ministry, perhaps his message wouldn't have had much impact because people would have been too busy looking at John rather than at God. So there may have been something in that as well. The importance of John's independence here comes, I think, especially clear when we see what his ministry was like. This passage we read ended with this quote from Isaiah 40, saying he will make the crooked straight and the rough smooth. Now, let me ask you, is he going out with uh, land and and earth-moving equipment? No. I mean, we know that, right? We know it's metaphorical. He's not changing the landscape. It's spiritual. It means he'd bring men's hearts back to a place where they would receive their Messiah. He would bring about a process of repentance. And now look at how this happens in John's day, about how this actually began. Look in Luke 3, verse 7. He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Well, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Uh, You know, John's not going to win any awards here for motivational speaking. That's my opinion. You won't see him invited back very often as a guest speaker. You know, this isn't the way the church works today, right? We, We don't talk like this to people, unfortunately, when appropriate. Now, he's preaching here to crowds that have come to hear him. He's not... You know, it's interesting to me that he's put himself in a position where they had to go out of their way to find him. They had to go out of their way to be associated with him. There, there was a bit of, of barrier to even wanting to be with such a crazy-looking guy. And then he gives them a message like this. You know, if you ever have any doubts or any debates about what, it, what a, a church should try to do in reaching people in their community, when you start to hear that conversation drift, as it commonly will, into a line of thought that says, we don't want to make them uncomfortable. We we want to be careful about going too hard at them with anything. Make sure that at least the first time time they hear you, you you don't push too hard. You know, give them a chance to get to know the church and get involved, and then maybe at some point later, in a Bible study or somewhere else, that's when you begin to really press a little bit about what they believe. But, you know, to do that first time out, they're just going to leave. Read this. Come back and read what God did with John the Baptist in a day when the audience was much harder to please, when the message was much more convicting than what we typically provide, and they're coming to hear it because the Holy Spirit was drawing them. You see, it's not in our power to bring them in the first place. We just have to bring the right message, let God do the work. 
But just look at the crowd overall. I mean, we know there's some there are probably attracted out of novelty, right? Who is this crazy guy? Some of them are probably curious about what all the fuss is. You know, the, the folks that slow down on the freeway anytime there's an accident. That, that, that same type of, of thinking is probably here. I, I would think some are probably there with false motives. You see him mention some of that at the beginning. But there are going to be some here that are compelled, that are drawn, that are driven. And I would argue that if you were to ask them in the moment, they're not even really sure why they're there. They just feel like they need to be there. By the description, it's also apparent that you have all manner of society here. I mean, for example, you've got workers. You know, how do we live in a, a life of, of doing our job? Then you have tax collectors. Now, we've already talked a little about how they filled into the, uh, their, their segment of society. These were very low-life people. Then you have the Roman soldiers themselves, completely outside the context. I mean, for the Jews, these, these, all, these folks had nothing to do with Jewish society. And yet, there's Roman soldiers standing by the side of the river. And when you look at Mark's account and when you look at Matthew's account, you will also find that there were Sadducees and there were Pharisees present at this moment. But they're not there for the same reasons that the crowd as a whole are there. These are the men that Luke is referring to here when he mentions this comment about vipers, when he records John's comments here. That word we know, having read it out of Matthew or Mark, is spoken directly to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Look at Matthew, for example, Matthew 3, verse 7. Uh, that author says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What he's referring to there, of course, is this false motive, this deceptive motive that's implicit in the presence of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He calls them a brood of vipers because he's saying, you yourselves know you're not here for the same reasons the crowd is. You, you, you don't really believe that the end is coming, that there is this wrath appointed for you, that unless you come and, in a sense, get right with God, you're going to be judged. You don't really believe that. You, you believe that you're already right with God. In fact, you believe you're righter with God than anyone else. You're the standard for the rest of the world, aren't you? So, I mean, that's implied in his comment here. He looks in these, at these men and looks into their hearts and he says, who warned you about the wrath to come? In other words... You're not here for that reason, are you? They were here for their own motives, and those motives ultimately were to tear John down. To hear him speak, listen to his ministry, and find something that they could hang on, an accusation so that they could bring him down. John asked them, who warns you about the wrath to come? He's saying that they're acting really not out of the Holy Spirit, but out of their own evil hearts. In fact, I would argue that just by, the virt by virtue of his accusation here, he's telling them that they do not have the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, you don't realize there's a wrath coming. And, of course, unless the Holy Spirit indwells us, we cannot understand the things of God. It is foolishness to us. So he's actually mocking them beyond just the fact that they're there. He's actually reflecting the truth that though they think they're righteous, they're actually the unbeliever. And though the others that are standing there are the pitiful, the underclass, the ones, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the base and the despised, they're the ones who've been chosen by God to know the truth. And as the Holy Spirit is beginning to reveal it to them, their response in the moment is proof of what God is doing in their hearts. It's a, it's a complete backward situation. The irony is those who think they have or the have-nots and those who are still wishing they had are actually the ones receiving God's grace. That's why he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think that simply because you're born of Abraham that that's going to be enough to assure you of salvation. 
In other words, he's saying that the tree that they are a part of, and you could make the comparison here out of what Paul says elsewhere to suggest that this tree is metaphorically more the picture of the nation of Israel in this day. An apostate nation. A nation that has largely fallen away from the living God. And they are a part of this tree, the nation of Israel, but that tree is about to get pruned, John says, as we've read. It's about to be cut down, not so as to be destroyed, but so that in the pruning, in the pruning, there could be both justice served against those who have been disobeying God's word, that they would be justly judged in that day, but that the nation as a whole would remain so that it could still serve God's ultimate purposes, both for the sake of the nation itself, that one day it would be restored and it will inherit the blessings that have been promised in the covenant to Abraham, but in the meantime, that another group of people, the Gentiles, could be grafted into that stump, to what remains, to the truth and the promises given to the nation of Israel, so that that grafting in would provide opportunity for the Gentiles to benefit from those very same Jewish promises. That's you and I today. Right now, we represent, metaphorically, the branches that are not natural to the tree. We weren't born Jews. We're not Jewish by birth. But yet, we've inherited the same promises made available to the nation of Israel by having been grafted in. Now, that doesn't make us Israel. Israel's still the stump. We're still the unnatural branch. Don't make the mistake of thinking they're one and the same. But that stump still lives and it still nourishes us, metaphorically or spiritually, by virtue of the promises and the word of God given to the prophets of Israel and to the men of of, of the nation of Israel, to the covenants themselves made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which still form the basis of God's mercy for that nation. We're grafted into those promises, ultimately realized in the new covenant. And one day, as Paul says in in chapter 11 of Romans, he will return to that stump, to that original growth, restore it such that it will be the chief nation of the earth, us there with it, and the nation of Israel will receive all that has been promised. But in this day, in the day of John the Baptist, those who were the nation in that day, they're receiving God's judgment for their unbelief. And Paul's looking at these Pharisees and Sadducees who by, by their role as leaders represent the nation. And he's saying... If you really had the faith you're claiming, you would bear fruit in keeping with true repentance. But because you don't, you're going to get mowed down, as the nation was, according to how Scripture explains it. So John's ministry here to bring men and women back to the Lord begins with a reliance on the work of the Holy Spirit to draw men to the work of redemption. Even John himself alluding to God's role in bringing men to him in the way he rebuked the Pharisees. John 6:44, the Gospel of John, says something to this effect when he says, no one, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to draw men to Christ, just as John the Baptist was used in his day to draw men to the Messiah. Now, if we look further in the passage, I want you to consider the instructions that John gives to these people. It's interesting when you think about it, If I had not read this to you and I had started this morning saying, I want you to imagine the scene. John's on the the shores of of the River Jordan. He has a group of people, common people from the area, gathered to be baptized. And they turn to him and they say, we feel a drawing to your ministry. We hear your words. Now we need to know, what should our response be? Now, what would you have filled in at that point? What, What would you have put in the blank when I would ask you, what did John respond with? How many of you would have provided in that blank essentially the gospel? You felt some calling. You're here today. You feel a call to repentance. Now the answer is, now you ask me what you should do and we would return to you and we would say, believe in the Messiah, right? 
It's interesting that he doesn't say that, really. I mean, not in those words, perhaps, but it's interesting how he points to their works. How he points to their works. Now, let's look at what he says. What shall he do? He said to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with, one, uh, with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. We're speaking here about charity, but, but also about fairness, about recognizing the needs of others and providing for it, whether in a charitable way or through your business or through some other means, but effectively caring for the needs of others in a fair-minded way. Then, of course, the tax collector. It's an issue, really, of honesty, being honest in your work. And, of course, the same for the soldier, not, not showing undue force, not being uncaring and unkind. These are all works of charity and love. Let's put a simple word to it. Love. And he adds all of these as examples of what they should do when they ask him, how do they respond to his ministry? What are these examples of, other than, of course, the word love, what do they really get to in the larger issue? These are all that, those uh, works are all examples of what fruit of repentance looks like. Remember, he's already told the vipers, do the works of repentance. Show the fruit of repentance. In other words, prove that you really are repentant of a life lived of sin. Demonstrate what you say with your actions. These are the examples, by the way, that ran completely against the culture. If you had two tunics, you didn't give one away because the normal way to wear clothing was to layer your clothing. Most people would wear everything they owned. You didn't have a second set. You wore everything. And to give one away is effectively like giving away half your wardrobe. Nobody would have really done that. That would have been very odd to do. Tax collectors not collecting more than they're supposed to. Do you realize what he just asked that gentleman to do? Work for free. That's how they made their living. Now, it was a dishonest living because what they did was they would excel, uh, make the amount they collected so much greater than what was required that it turned into extortion. But he said here, not only collect a small amount more, he said, don't collect any more than you have to. He's saying, work for free. That's a stunning request, isn't it? And then, of course, to the soldiers. A Roman soldier was not a Roman soldier if he was not brutal. That, that kind of was part of the job description. He's saying, basically, don't act like a soldier. Don't be who you are. Maybe that's the way I would sum it up. Don't be who you really are, who you were, in other words, what you were like. Here's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in comparison to John today. Yes, we believe in the gospel and we are saved. Obviously, that is the, that is the ultimate destination of this discussion. But do you understand Scripture says it is repent and believe? Repent and believe? It's two steps, really, maybe going on in the same moment, but yet it is two steps. In other words, I can't skip the repentance step and believe. Not truly. No, what I can do, and, I, and I've described this, I think, at least once before, what I can do is I can skip the repentance step, give some assent, some agreement to the gospel message, but by not repenting of who I am, all I've done is taken Christ and dropped him right on top of whatever else I'm trusting in. However else I've decided, God will be pleased in me. Like, for example, in the case of the Pharisees. They keep the law. They, they tithe on everything they have. They live an outwardly self-righteous life. And if they had agreed that Jesus was a prophet or a teacher or the Messiah even, without a repentance of who they were, then all they would have been doing was adding yet another work on top of all the others that they were carrying with them. They would have said, oh, I'll take Jesus too. No, you can't do that. You can't take Jesus too. You can only take him only. And repentance is not simply a matter of don't do bad things. It's reflected in that. That's the fruit of it. But at its heart, it's about rejecting who you are. 
apart from Christ. Rejecting the notion that we have any worth before God apart from Christ. Rejecting the notion that we can do anything of value or of worth before God apart from Christ. Rejecting the concept that we have any hope to reach heaven apart from Christ. It's that rejection, that repentance that must precede any belief in the gospel. It's the nature of John's ministry. You see, if he's mirroring the Holy Spirit, he's not mirroring Christ. He's not the whole enchilada. John's ministry is not about presenting the gospel. He doesn't do that. Not in its entirety. For to do so would have been to steal the thunder of Christ himself, who was soon to arrive. His ministry was to prepare hearts, to prepare the repentance, so that a heart that's broken and repentant and in recognition of its own sin and the need for a Savior is therefore ready when John says, there is the Lamb of God. That's the one you've been waiting for. And in that moment, there is a mass following available to Christ because they've all been prepared for that. John's there to prepare the hunger. Jesus is the answer to that hunger. So he has come with that ministry. That's why he gave the answers he gave. He said, what are we to do? Show fruit of repentance. Make sure you're ready with a repentant heart for the gospel that is soon to arrive so that you won't miss it. Look at Luke 3.15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to all of them, As for me, I baptize you with water, But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. To take note of the work of the Holy Spirit here as well, as pictured in John's ministry. He's prepared these people... So that the end result of all that they are experiencing, as we've said, is to look forward to a Messiah. In fact, they even ask John, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? You can see that need, that expectation, that hunger, evident even in that question, that they are ready for the Messiah. John, of course, says no. Other Gospels give an even more authoritative account on that point, which we'll cover later. But then he points them to Christ and he says, there is the one to come who you must follow. One I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. And now we look at that final piece for how John would accomplish the prophecy given in Isaiah. Having been drawn by the Holy Spirit, taught of the need to repent, to show fruit, now pointed to their salvation, when he arrives, they'll be ready to receive him. Do you notice he says that I baptize you with water, but this one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That last part... I don't know about you, it kind of concerned me a little bit. I don't remember that happening yet. So whenever it's planned, I'm I'm not sure how that's going to take place. Well, let me explain to you what he's talking about. First, the one about the water. He he makes the point very clearly. Look, I'm just dunking you in water. It's, It's nothing special. It doesn't do anything spiritually. It's symbolic, in other words. And in like way, we've said already when we were able to baptize a few of our our members recently, when I spoke at that event, we said that the baptisms we do today in water are really much the same as the one John the Baptist himself did, in that they're symbolic. They're, they're, in, they're, they're picturing something, not accomplishing anything spiritually, so to speak. They are important because it's an obedience to the Lord's command that we do it, but it doesn't mean that in the moment something supernatural and mystical has taken place. It's just the obedient act of following through with the Lord's commands. And in all of that, it provides a very useful picture to something greater. John's making the same point here. 
This is his ministry to picture something, to reflect something in a symbolic way. But, he says, don't misunderstand, there is a real spiritual baptism yet to come for those who believe. It is first a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the baptism that saves you. It accompanies faith. In the moment you believe in the gospel, you are baptized, we say, by the Holy Spirit. Another way to think of it is, you're dunked into the Holy Spirit forever to remain there. So that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the coming upon us of the Spirit at the moment we believe. But now, what does he mean about baptism by fire? Do you notice the verses I read immediately after the reference to fire? He says, the winnowing fork, that's Christ he's referring to, the winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, there's, there's really two ways you can experience Christ. On the one hand, by faith, you can be baptized by the Holy Spirit into him. We, call it, we say we are in Christ. In the reference I made, in the reading I, I had this morning out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you saw Paul mention at the very end of that chapter, by his doing we are in Jesus Christ. That's that reference to being baptized into the body of Christ. For those in here who by faith have trusted in Christ as their Messiah, you've experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That half of it you've seen. Now the other half, the fire half, is a reference to the judgment. You see, Christ himself said, in his first coming he came not to judge, but to save. But that doesn't mean there isn't yet another opportunity for him to judge. In fact, implicit in that statement is, on my second coming, it's the other way around. In my second coming, I don't come to save, uh, I come now to judge. For the opportunity to be saved has been lost for those who wait until that moment. And when I come the second time, as John himself mentions here in his reference to the chaff being burned up, those who have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit will be baptized, if you want to use that term, in fire. They will be burned up. In other words, they will still experience a ministry, if you will, or a power of Christ in their lives. It just will come in a way they would prefer not. All men, we're told, will bow one day before Christ. Every tongue will confess. Sooner or later, we're all there. It's just a matter of when. That's how the Holy Spirit works today. When God desires to bring the knowledge of Christ to a man or woman, He first prepares their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of that as your own personal John the Baptist working in your heart to teach you of your sin and the need of repentance and the need for a Savior. He prepares the ground of your heart in that way. And then... As your heart is open to the message of the gospel, he is good to bring someone to bring the message. Whether it comes in the form of a preacher on Sunday morning, or a neighbor, or a spouse, or a brother, or a sister, or maybe somebody gives you a Bible track or the Gideon Bible in your hotel room. Somehow, I mean, God's at work in all these ways. Somehow the word of God is there in the right moment to bring what is the message you hope for, having been prepared with the Holy Spirit's act in the heart. The whole picture just comes together. And we say we believe. We say we're saved. We, we talk in terms of what we did to respond. That's great. Just don't ignore how it began. Long before you even looked for him, while we were yet still enemies of him, he was at work to do this both on the cross in one day and in our hearts every day to persuade us to come to the embrace of Christ. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And then later in that chapter, he says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And then he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What I love about that passage is, having heard all of what we know up to this moment today of the work of the Holy Spirit, of the fact that God must draw us to Him through the work of the Holy Spirit. Did you know, and and by the way, Paul taught most of what we know on that point. So Paul himself knew it very well. And yet, what does Paul say to the church at Corinth in his second letter? He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. What I love about that is the balance. The balance that on the one hand, we trust God to do the work. We acknowledge his sovereignty over man's hearts. We don't provide, or presume rather, that we provide anything to that process. And yet, we are not passive about it. We don't give up. We don't stand by and say, well, what will happen will happen. He says, I persuade men. We beg you on behalf of Christ. We work our hearts out to bring the message of the gospel, not because we assume we have to, but because it's a privilege to. And not because if it weren't for us, no one would be saved. But on the other hand, we don't know who God may be prepared to save through our work. So we go to every man with the same message, equally uh, persistent and equally expectant that God might use that message to save, as he is prone to do. No soft sell, though. No happy-go-lucky message. The truth of repent and believe. The foolishness of the cross, so that the cross would not be made void. And that's what would happen if we preached the gospel unapologetically, just as John did himself. Let's go to Lord in prayer as we end today. Holy Father, we pray that John the Baptist's ministry, as you've taught it through the Word today, could live as an example in our hearts, Father. We don't presume to be equal to him in any way. We don't presume, Father, to have his ministry in our personal lives. That's not necessary even. But, Father, we don't presume, on the other hand, that you would have nothing to do with our lives for that purpose. We, we don't assume, Father, that we could never achieve the same kinds of, of outcome or work. Because, Father, we are all men. John the Baptist, us, all men, the same. And, Father, all of us are equally sinful. All of us are equally in need of the salvation you've provided through Christ. But having been saved, Father, we are all equally available. And we ask, Father, that what we've learned today would first, in our own hearts, reaffirm our faith. Show us, Father, the truth of Scripture in that regard, that if we know the Lord and we can be confident in that, we would seek to show others. And perhaps, Father, if it be the case for some that this is a a new thought, something that has only recently come to roost in the heart, that now today would be the opportunity to confirm it through a confession of faith. But in either case, Father, we pray that as we go out from here, we'd be useful to you. Let us bring forth the message we know, Father, the message that men must repent of sin and must turn from their way of life and live according to the new life you provide in Christ and that they would receive the Messiah, the Jesus that you preach out of the gospel. And with that new knowledge, Father, they might be made a son or daughter of the Lord and be useful to him for further ministry. This is the message, Father, we all hope to deliver, to live out first and then deliver to others. It's a good day to be reminded of that, Father. A good day is every day. Father, we also pray that for the rest of this day and our week to come, as we contend with the the sadness of lost loved ones, as we uh, look forward, Father, to uh, another week of work, or as we seek uh, to um, reach out in new jobs or new opportunities in school, whatever you have laid before us in the week to come, let those things not command our attention so much that we forget, Father, that our purpose in life on this earth is to represent you as an ambassador. Let that go wherever we go. And, uh, Father, let us be faithful in that work. 
And as always, Father, we pray we could return next week, joined by others, if it be your will, to worship you here in this place. We ask you all these things, giving you the glory you so richly deserve, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.